epistle lesson for the morning is found in Revelation chapter 1. We're reading verses 9 through 20, but we will be looking at an expanded horizon of from there today into chapters 2 and 3 where we find the seven letters to the churches. Listen carefully to God's Word. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I had the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, we confess that it is only in your light that we see and perceive and know any light at all. We're dependent and we're weak, but you are good and you are faithful, and your promise is that you will send forth your light and your truth in your Holy Spirit, and you will guide us into all truth. And so we ask you today that you speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. In my favorite short story written by Flannery O'Connor, it's entitled Revelation, she tells the story of Ruby Turpin. Ruby is an upper-class white woman who has a particular disdain for anyone who doesn't share her class or share her color. Visiting a doctor's office, Mrs. Turpin properly but very self-righteously sizes up the crowd in the waiting room to one of her peers. A young woman, waiting on her own appointment, overhears Ruby's judgments and grows tired of them. She is there reading a book titled Human Development. She snarls at Ruby, throws the book, hits her in the head, and then attacks her. It's a lampoonish scene almost. If you're familiar with O'Connor's works, she begins to choke her out. 
tells her to return to hell where she came from and calls her an old warthog. Ruby leaves the doctor's office and returns home to her family farm. She was fuming with what had happened. She was furious with God that he had allowed such public indecency to fall upon her life. She goes out to the hog pen where she was going to wash down the pigs for the afternoon. In a tirade, reminiscent of the book of Job, she asked God, why me? Why was this done to me? And then she complains to God. She says this, you can put the bottom rail on the top, but it doesn't change a thing. Her anger then culminates in an outburst. Who do you think you are? As the sun sets on Ruby, she becomes increasingly aggressive, letting out her frustration on the pigs, and she sees a vision. She has a vision of a highway reaching through the skies into the heavens. And on that highway, in the setting sun, she sees a mass of humanity traveling up into the heavens. And at the lead of that mass of humanity were the very people that Ruby despised and disdained. There was the white trash, as she called them. There were the lunatics, and there were the African Americans. They were the first ones on the highway. And then in the rear of this great company, she saw all the proper people that she shared society with that she deemed to be correct, and they were the last. The point of the vision is very simple but profound. It was O'Connor's commentary on Jesus' statement that the first will be last and the last will be first. But what's fascinating about the story is that O'Connor is extremely uh, perceptive about something that belongs to biblical visions. You see, biblical visions can be oriented to the future at times, and we see that in the book of Revelation. But most of the visions in the book of Revelation are actually oriented to something going on in heaven that gives a new perspective, a new angle on things on the earth. It is to affect us in the here and now. And so John is not swept away from the here and now to simply look at things in the hereafter, but rather to gain a new angle on reality from heaven's perspective, from God's vantage point. And this is what a revelation or a vision does for us, and it's the value of the book of Revelation. And so this week, we arrive at the first real vision that will extend all the way through chapter 3 with Jesus dictating seven letters to the churches. John is exiled on the Isle of Patmos because of his faithfulness to Jesus, and a voice speaks to him. He turns to see who this voice belongs to, and he sees seven golden lampstands. These lampstands are references to the lampstand that was in the temple, the holy, of the holy place, where the priest was commissioned to tend to the lamps that they always burned. He had to trim the wicks. He had to make sure the oil was there. And so in verse 20, we learn that these seven lampstands that he sees, these are actually the churches. 
And amongst the lampstands, there's one walking, the Son of Man, who's none the less than Jesus. That he's tending to the churches. That he's caring as the high priest for each of the lampstands. And this is what's so significant for us, is that Jesus is not somehow absent from us, but rather he's present, caring for the churches. He's committed to the church. He's concerned for the church. He cares about the church. And so what follows in chapters 2 and 3 is Jesus' commitment and care and concern for the church. Because he wasn't just addressing these seven historical churches. We know that the number seven is symbolic and it refers to completeness and fullness. And Jesus is addressing all of the churches. The churches of that day, then and there, and the churches of this day, here and now. He's speaking to us. And so it's significant for us to answer the question, How exactly does Jesus tend to and nurture the church? And what we find here is that Jesus ministers to the church by his spirit through his word. And this is what unfolds in these seven letters that are coming. These seven letters to the church universal. And what we see as we look at them today is that there is a similar outline for each of them. There are some small differences But we learn something incredibly important as we look at those letters all together. We learn exactly what spiritual dynamics to expect when Jesus ministers to us. Because the Son of God has not vacated his throne. He has not stopped tending to the churches. And this is what he is active doing today. So what exactly are the dynamics that unfold as Jesus ministers to the church. Three things that we'll focus on this morning. First, we see that he speaks a word of affirmation, encouragement. And second, we'll see that he also speaks a word of concern, even critique. And the third dynamic is we see that he also speaks a word of promise. And so we'll briefly look at each of these three this morning. First, There's a word of affirmation that comes from Jesus. The body of each of these seven letters begins in the same way, begins with the words, I know your works. In all but two cases, this is intended as an encouragement that God sees and God knows the faithful service of his people as they give themselves freely to him. And friends, this is of great comfort to us because the Christian life is full of obedience that doesn't receive public accolade. Sometimes, in fact, it brings difficulty into our lives. These things are not celebrated by the world around us, and typically they go even unnoticed. And Jesus reveals that God takes it all in that he sees and he knows. He knows what was done in private, he knows what was done in secret. He knows what things have cost you. And he affirms what has been done. He recognizes it. And we see this throughout the letters. If you begin in chapter 2, in verse 2, in the letter to the church in Ephesus, Jesus says, I know your works. 
your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. And so he affirms the church for their patience and their faithfulness through difficulty. And then he affirms them for one other thing, that they hadn't tolerated false doctrine, that they hadn't accepted teaching that was not faithful to the gospel. In chapter 2, verse 9, the church in Smyrna, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. This church was also faithful to Jesus through difficulty. They've been impoverished because of their faith, and he affirms them because they were even enduring being misrepresented by outsiders. They were being maligned and accused of things that weren't true. And then in 2.19, we see Jesus affirming the church in Thyatira. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. This church is actually praised, it's affirmed, because through the difficulties, they were actually increasing in their zeal to love and serve God. Jesus knew that, and he affirmed that. And this is what we can expect from Jesus. It's a spiritual dynamic as he ministers to us, that he gives us that secret seal of approval and approbation, that this is what Jesus does on our behalf. He recognizes and receives our service to him. But the second important thing to note, the second dynamic playing out as Jesus tends to the church is that there is a word of concern, even a word of critique. This is undoubtedly the most difficult dynamic that unfolds in these letters. It's important to point out that he expresses these concerns to the same churches that he also affirms. Jesus speaks in two ways, and we must be able to hear him do so. He expresses a stronger word of concern without much encouragement to two of the churches, to the church in Sardis and Laodicea. But to the other churches, Jesus commends them and also he critiques them. He's going to speak in both ways. And we struggle just culturally to hear Jesus speak in both of these ways. My late mentor, Tim Russell, embodied this perhaps the best for me personally. As Tim and I began to grow in our relationship, he said to me one day, he said, I promise to love you fiercely, hugging you around the neck and kneeing you in the groin. It's Tim's pledge. He fulfilled that till his last day. And friends, this is what true love looks like when it's embodied in your life. It's commitment. It is affirmation and encouragement. It's commendation. And then it also involves concern and critique. That he can speak a word against us out of concern for us. And as a church, we're not beyond the need for this. Due to our pride due to our own laziness, due to our own ingratitude, the sin that still dwells within us, compromise can stealthily 
and surely creep into the life of the church. And in these letters, Jesus is faithful to tend to the needs of the church to address those compromises. And by way of summary, there's two main compromises that he's concerned about, that he wants to address. And the first is the compromise of what we could call dead orthodoxy. If you return to the letter to the Ephesian church in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. And so Jesus expresses the concern that this church in Ephesus, yes, they had not tolerated false teaching. They had not taken on board false doctrine. He affirmed them and commended them for that. But then what is his concern? They had lost their first love. Their theology was something known somewhat in the abstract, that their theology was not directing them and taking them to be in love with God and to gratefully serve him, that this is what was happening, and there was a dead orthodoxy living here in the church in Ephesus. We see something similar in Sardis, where they had a reputation. They were well known for their alleged faithfulness to be strong and vital, but yet Jesus says, in reality, you're actually dead. And so Jesus is concerned for the spiritual vitality of the church. And he knows that we can compromise ourselves by settling for appearances or settling for a past faithfulness that is not alive in the present. And so he's concerned to minister to that need in the church. Now the second compromise that we find is the compromise of tolerance. If you look in verse 20, we have the letter to the church in Thyatira. And this is what Jesus says. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Jesus' concern with this church here is that they were tolerating false teaching that was taking place in their midst. There was a similar problem in Pergamum, and Jezebel is a symbolic name that's often used in Scripture for someone who compromises with idolatry and encourages idolatrous practice. The main concern is that this idolatrous practice was going unchecked. You'll note that the entire church was not engaged in it, but they were putting up with it. They were allowing it to happen. It's important to gain sympathy by understanding the background to the situation, what was taking place in these cities. And some of the Christians were too closely associated with the Roman institutions of government and religion. And this typically happened through the trade guilds. That was through your vocation, your work, your means of livelihood. But we know from study of the ancient world that the trade guilds had elaborate religious festivals. And if you were to be an active member of that guild and to preserve your livelihood, it was required that you participate in these religious festivals. You demonstrated that you were a good citizen, that you were faithful and true. 
And in these festivals, they were not neutral settings at all. Sacrifices were made. Oaths were taken. Honoring gods by consuming meals took place. And this is the immorality that's being referred to here. It's a concourse with other gods. And Jesus is identifying that. The rest of the church, what Jesus is concerned about is that we're not taking a stand against it. They were tolerating it. And so Jesus, in whatever form compromise takes, whether it's tolerance of false teaching or whether it's a dead orthodoxy, he comes to the church and he calls us to repent. He calls us to turn and to yield ourselves to him. He does it out of concern that the flame of the church, the light of the church will continue to shine. It is his way of nurturing the church. And so when he comes in concern and critique, it's not in a universal criticism that levels you. It's in his loving care and hand that he comes to you and calls you to find life in his name. And so Jesus speaks to the church in this way. Final dynamic that we see is that there is also a word of promise. Each of the letters, no matter how stern, no matter how challenging that particular letter is, ends with a promise. It ends with the words, to the one who conquers. To conquer, in the book of Revelation, is not to fight your way into heaven, making it there on your own efforts and your own accomplishments. But rather, to conquer is to remain faithful to Jesus, to be faithful to your beliefs, to hold fast to him and your values, to hold fast to your hope. And that this is what it looks like to conquer. And the promises are given to those who conquer. For instance, look at the promise to the church in Ephesus in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus picks up the imagery from Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 of the tree of life that human beings were cut off from because of our sinful rebellion in which we turned against God. We were then exiled from that garden temple and not able to commune with God directly, now needing a mediator, Jesus Christ, to stand between. And what Jesus is promising here is that all those who believe in him will be restored to Eden's paradise that they will be restored to that new heavens and earth where heaven and earth are once again reconciled and that you'll eat from this tree and you will have life, that you will inherit this new creation, that this is sure and this is true and this is good. This is your promise from God. Or you have the promise to the church in Pergamum. If you follow with me in chapter 2, verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. 
The hidden manna refers to the great banquet at the consummation of history that we find in Isaiah 25, where God will swallow up death forever and raise his people from the dead and serve them at a great banquet feast in which we celebrate the Lamb who's reconciled us to God. This is the hidden manna that God reserves for us, is that food. But we also see reference to this white stone. White stones in the ancient Roman Empire were used for two things. A white stone was used to indicate innocence in a trial. And so the innocent were given a white stone to show that they were not guilty. And what Jesus is saying here is that he will give you a white stone, that you're innocent of all charges, that your sins will not be held against you. Not because of anything you have done, he gives you this stone, that he washes you white through, the, through his own blood that was given on your behalf. And white stones were also used, used as invitations. And there's a name carved in this stone. And that stone is inviting you to this great banquet feast personally. Jesus is inviting you. He's welcoming you because he's washed you clean. You're innocent of all charges because of what he's done on your behalf. And this is the word of promise that always comes to us as Jesus ministers. We have the great hope of everything that is to come in the reunion of heaven and earth. Friends, these are the spiritual dynamics at play as Jesus at the right hand of God tends to the churches around the world. There is affirmation, deep and abiding encouragement there is concern, even critique, that the church's flame will burn brightly. And there is promise. Everything that your God has secured for you in Jesus is surely to be there as you hold fast to him. And the challenge for us in the present moment is to listen to him in all the ways that he ministers to us to listen to his word, that his spirit would awaken us, that we would hear him in affirmation, in concern, in promise, and that we would allow him to speak in concert and not just in one way that we perhaps favor. And so let's have ears to hear what the spirit says to the churches. Let's give ourselves to that. Let's pray. Father, we celebrate that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, the lamb, into the world to be slain on our behalf. And we have been reconciled to you in and through him. And so we rejoice in the good things that you have done on our behalf. And we approach you this morning in Jesus Christ, knowing that our prayers ascend to you through him and that we are heard. Grant us to have the courage to hear and to listen to him as he ministers to us by his spirit in his word. Grant us to hear his affirmations. Grant us to hear his concerns and critiques. Grant us to hear the promises and may we receive them by faith and yield ourselves freely to you.
Father, we come this morning praying to you on behalf of our church and on behalf of our world. We ask, God, that you would have mercy upon the nations of the earth, that you would let the peoples praise you, O God, that you would let all the peoples praise you, that you would let the nations be glad and sing for joy, that you would open their eyes to our Lord Jesus and to his reign over all the ends of the earth, and may they be reconciled to you in and through him. And so, God, use all of our missionaries and partners in this great work here in Jacksonville and all around the world to proclaim the gospel that men and women from every tribe and every tongue and every nation may be redeemed and walk in communion with you. We particularly give thanks for our mission partner, Seamark Ranch. You have instructed us to care for orphans and for widows, tending to all the vulnerable in society. And we thank you for Seamark's work to care for the orphans in and around Jacksonville. God, we ask that you provide them every resource that they require. We ask that you would strengthen their house parents. And Lord, we pray for your work in these kids' lives, that you would direct them to yourself as they're educated and nurtured and cared for at Seamark. Continue to grow and expand this work, and may it be a city set upon a hill, light shining in darkness as they faithfully serve you. And in your word, you also instruct us that we are to pray for all those in authority. And so, in obedience to you this morning, we pray for our president, Donald Trump. We pray for our governor, Ron DeSantis. We pray for our mayor, Lenny Curry. We pray for all other representatives and those who wield authority, and we ask that you would have mercy on them, that you sustain them through difficulties that they currently face and endure, that you give them wisdom, and that you direct them to righteousness, to righteous causes that please you. And Father, we pray for all who are suffering, especially in our community. Draw near and affirm them with all of your good promises. Remind them today and seal the promise to their heart that they will receive a white stone. A white stone, God, that declares their innocence, that they are free from all charges because of what Jesus has done. A white stone that invites them to this great banquet in which they will be fed and in which they will be nurtured at the destruction of death, where they are reconciled fully and finally to you to live in this new Eden, this garden made right. God, seal those promises to the hearts of all those who suffer. And we pray for the children, and we pray for the youth of Christ church. We're grateful for the stewardship Thank you for each one of these children and thank you for your promises to them that you will be their God and that they will be numbered amongst your people and that you will be their God and the God of their children and their children's children. And so may they each grow up in the knowledge of you. Help us as we prepare them to be the next generation of the church and may they rise, be awakened, to be steadfast, 
and vigorous in their service of our Lord Jesus as they profess faith in his name. Be at work in their midst. Father, we pray all of these things in the name of our Lord Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.